Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. First, we have Alexander DeSanctis, who is a staff writer for National Review and a visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She was previously a William F. Buckley Fellow in Political Journalism with the National Review Institute. And she also graduated from Notre Dame in 2016 with a degree in political science. Our second speaker is Karen Lips, who is the founder and president of the Network for Enlightened Women, the nation's premier organization for, the, for conservative university women. She is the editor of She's Conservative, Stories and Trials, Stories of Trials and Triumphs on America's College Campuses and a senior fellow with the Independent Women's Forum. She also earned her law degree from the University of Virginia and was a spring 2016 resident fellow with the Harvard Institute of Politics. Please join me in welcoming our two panelists today. All right, so I'm supposed to kick it off today. I'd like to start by thanking Professor Munoz for the invitation to speak to all of you. It really uh, wasn't very long ago that I myself was in Professor Munoz's class, a seminar with him. So it's uh, kind of strange to be speaking to such a class now, but I'm very excited um, to be doing this. So I think I actually will be talking more in this class than I talked in his class, which is something I'm reproved for often when he and I talk. But in any event, um, I'm excited to be here. And I think uh, it's a difficult topic to tackle because, you know, coming as it does the day before inauguration and the future of conservatism is a, a really big question, obviously a very uh, open-ended one and a difficult one given what we've seen over the last uh, two months in particular and, and even the last two weeks. Um, so I, I want to try and tackle um, the feminism question and, and conservatism in general without talking about Donald Trump too much at all, if I can help it. I think we could all use a break from that particular topic. Um, but of course, the fact that we're having this conversation uh, on his last day as president makes him kind of a, a present um, aspect in what we're going to talk about. So I'll, I'll talk about him a bit, but I'll try to limit it. Um, and, and I think uh, talking about conservatism within the framework of feminism and women's role in conservatism is one of the most helpful ways to think about the future of conservatism, especially because um, so often we hear, okay, conservatism, the Republican party, this is the party of old white men. There's no future for this party. Uh, women can't be conservatives. Women aren't conservative. That's simply not true. And it's not true of, you know, many other ideological groups that people say can't be conservative. Um, we often hear that, okay, if you're black, if you're Hispanic, you must vote Democrat. Of course, the Democratic party is going to represent your interests. That's simply not the case. And that's something I'm going to touch on a little bit later, um, but it's definitely not the case for women and, and women are actually, you know, they tend to lean left, but they're about evenly split in the US uh, between right leaning and left leaning. And I think if we want to understand where conservatism ought to go from here, um, a really important part of that conversation is, will women feel welcome? Will women feel important? Is there space for women to talk about their interests and their needs within the conservative movement? So with that in mind, I wanna make just two big points about where we find ourselves right now. Um, the first is, what are conservatives facing within our own movement? I, I come at this obviously from a conservative perspective. Um, and the second is what are we dealing with as conservatives in our opposition on the left? And I think uh, looking at where the left is, is almost more important than looking at where the conservative movement is. Uh, but let's start with where we are as conservatives. There's no way around the fact that uh, the right in America right now is deeply divided primarily because of Donald Trump. Um, 
did you support him or not? Did you support impeachment the first time or the second time? Uh, did you vote from the first time? Did you vote from the second time? Are you a fan of what he did policy-wise? Do you dislike him as a person? All these sorts of questions, um, unfortunately, from my perspective, are a defining factor in whether you consider yourself a conservative right now. And there's a lot of fights about, oh, well, you can't be a conservative because you didn't support Trump, or you can't be a conservative because you did support Donald Trump. It's all about Donald Trump. And that's why I opened the way that I did saying, I think we need to find a way to talk about conservatism as a set of ideas again, and as a set of policies that we can debate, you know, where is the conservative movement going to come down on uh, something like family leave policy, for example, very important to women, very important to the feminism debate, um, is the conservative movement going to prioritize its pro-life uh, agenda? Very important to women. Um, there's a, more pro-life women, in fact, than pro-abortion women in the U.S. Those types of questions, I think, are a lot more important to the future of conservatism than what do you think about Donald Trump? And so my hope is going forward, um, especially once this whole, you know, if, if the Senate, um, once they try Trump and that's all kind of out of the way, we can move forward with a more ideological conversation. And that's where I think the feminism piece um, can kind of come into the picture. And I think our, our second speaker today will talk a bit more about what that might look like in substance. Um, but from my perspective, a conservative, I've always been conservative and, and a woman, um, I think there's a lot of room within the conservative movement for women. And that's where actually the second part of my second point comes in because women I think are often told essentially you must be on the left, but you can't be on the left unless you also want to agree to this enormous list of you know, agenda action items, policy preferences. And in fact, you're kind of a, a traitor as a woman if you don't consider yourself a Democrat, if you're not pro-abortion, if you're not, you know, go down the list of things that women are told they must believe in in order to be a, a real feminist. And so given that that's what's happening on the left, I think there's kind of this vacuum uh, that conservatives can step into and say, look, we think that women are diverse. We think that women can believe all sorts of things and we're not a party, we're not a movement of old white men look at all these women who are you know, advocating conservative principles. Uh, there's room for you here if the left is telling you you don't belong. Um, so my, my second point is, what are we dealing with in our opposition on the left? Um, we have room to recover with women despite having lost a lot of ground, especially among suburban moderate women because of Donald Trump, uh, because of what we're witnessing on the left. So I think uh, if, you, if anybody's paying attention to politics at all, you'll notice we're in an identity politics moment. Um, and this gives the left a lot of capital because the left is a champion of identity politics. They almost don't know how to talk about politics or about people or about culture anymore without talking about identity politics. We saw this last summer with all the, the protests and the riots. We've seen this throughout the election season. Everything is about what's the color of your skin? What gender are you? What is your sexual orientation? What is your religion? People are broken down into these boxes and then the left tries to claim every box of people that isn't a white conservative man. All those boxes of people are told, you must be on the left because we're the only people who are gonna support you. We progressives are the only people who are going to advocate policies that help you. And conservatives are told, sorry, you know, if you're in one of these groups, you're basically a sellout. Um, and an example I like to point to with this is in 2018, when white women in particular voted in favor of Republican candidates, so much of the commentary that we saw in response from pundits, from you know, media, from people on the left was, how dare you? How could you vote for more Republicans than you voted for uh, Democrats? And probably women were thinking to themselves, I was thinking to myself, because I'm an individual with my own set of views, right? I can be a conservative and a woman. And yet the response from the left to the fact that women voted Republican was, you're a traitor, you're a sellout. 
It wasn't, oh, let's see where these women are coming from and talk about policies you know, that might win them over to our side. It was, you're a bad person if you voted for Ted Cruz. And I think given that that's where so much of the left is right now, and it's all about the color of your skin, all about your gender, and that's supposed to dictate your political views, that gives conservatives a lot of room to say, uh, basically, we're not the side that does that, right? There's room for free thinking. You're welcome. It's not about, you know, who you are or, you know, your, your kind of characteristics, your accidental characteristics or your immutable characteristics. Um, it's about what you believe. And there's room for, for women here on the right as well. So I suppose we could get to more particulars of what that means if you have questions about that. Um, but I think I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Okay. Uh, I jump right in. Please, thank you very much. Yes. Well, thanks, Alexandra, for your for your opening comments, and thank you so much for inviting me to join you today. We are at a time uh, when the popular women's movement and feminist leaders don't respect the voices and opinions of conservative women. And Alexandra touched on this in her remarks. Um, a great example is after the 2020 election, Glamour, Cosmo, Teen Vogue, and other out outlets all focused um, and celebrated the progressive squad winning one new member while virtually ignoring that the number of House Republican women increased by double digits. During Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, even the Girl Scouts deleted a tweet congratulating her because of backlash from liberals. That partly explains why many conservative women are uneasy with the term feminism today. Feminism lacks a universally agreed upon meaning. If we all wrote down our definition of feminism today, they would vary not only in how we define the term, but also on what feminism as a social movement should be or is fighting for. Progressive groups have taken the term and pulled it left, very far left, using the banner of women's causes to carry out their vision of government. Take the Women's March a few years ago. There was no unifying principle of helping all women, but instead it was a gathering of liberal causes. I believe it's time for a new version of feminism, a new version of a women's empowerment movement. One that respects women for the smart, capable human beings that we are, and one that focuses on unity um, for women across the political spectrum. And I like to call this version an opportunity version of feminism. So opportunity feminism is a new version of feminism that seeks to maximize freedom for women so that women have the tools they need to build the fulfilling and meaningful lives as they see fit. Individual women themselves can best organize their lives and they should have the freedom to do so. Opportunity feminism is feminism as it should be. Under opportunity feminism, women should be celebrated as the strong leaders we are who disagree on policies. We are not a monolithic voting block. We should debunk the myths about the status of women in America today. And just as we recognize women have different policy issue preferences, they also exercise freedom differently in terms of how they wanna build their family and career lives. We should decrease the role of government and employer-employee relationships and reduce regulations so that more women have the opportunity to create the work and personal lives that they want. This should occur both at the state and federal level. Now, in terms of promoting intellectual diversity, I think this should be the first agenda item on a new version of feminism. 
We truly need to respect women for the smart thinking human beings that we are. We shouldn't tell women how to think or what to think or treat women who think differently um, as outcasts or uh, gender traitors, as the left sometimes likes to call conservatives on the right. Um, drawing on the legacy of, of women who fought and won the right to vote. Uh, we celebrated last year the 100th anniversary of women winning the right to vote. Um, our project in feminism, one of the first steps should be celebrating women truly as the thoughtful human beings that we are. In 2018, the organization I run, the Network of Enlightened Women, published our first book, and it shared the stories of 22 young women uh, about what it's like to be a conservative on campus. One of the key takeaways um, is that many of the women, before they even stepped foot on campus, had made the decision to keep their views private, not just for fear of grades, but for fear of how this would impact their social life. Uh, a new Cato public opinion poll this past year of 2,000 Americans ages 18 and older found that while 77% of Republicans said they self-censor, only 52% of Democrats said they do. Even more telling is that staunch liberals were the only political segment of whom a majority, 58%, felt they could share their political views freely. This new poll corroborates what most conservatives, especially conservative women, know that their views and your, their opinions are not welcome in certain parts of society. So I think we need to change that. <laughs> Second, under opportunity feminism, we need to debunk the myths about the status of women in America today. I was reminded of this when the Daily Mail published an article about women's rights around the globe and found that only six countries truly had equal rights for women, um, according to a global report from the World Bank. And the US didn't even make the list of, didn't even make the top 50. So when it comes to the position of women in America, we, were, we must recognize what we've already achieved and push back on false narratives. And then I wanna to turn to workplace uh, policies. We hear a lot on the left and from feminist leaders about what needs to happen in the workplace to benefit women. I truly believe we need to decrease the role of government and employer-employee relationships and reduce regulations so that more women have the chance to create the work and personal lives that they choose. One example of this is in, in the realm of equal pay for women. We all want equal pay for women. You have probably heard that women make 77 cents for every dollar a man makes. Many women have embraced the 77 cents on the dollar statistics as evidence that they face systematic discrimination in the workplace and as a reason to support federal legislation to address this. Where does this number come from? The statistic compares the median earnings of full-time working men and women overall in our economy as reported by the Census Bureau. The Bureau, for example, reported that women who were full-time wage and salary workers earned 82% in median weekly earnings compared to men in 2017. In 2018, women earned 81 cents. This is not a good measure of equal pay because it doesn't take into account workers' labor choices that no doubt impact earnings, such as profession, education, hours worked, and many other work preferences. It doesn't compare a man and a woman working the same job. But the statistic is often used by politicians to justify new equal pay legislation that would increase the federal government regulation of employment. For example, when then Senator Harris was running for president, she announced a plan with a, a plan that 100 or more employees must disclose 
um, pay data to the EEOC. So companies with 100 or more employees have to disclose more data. Um, improve the for merit performance or seniority, not gender. Companies would have to earn a quote equal pay certification or they'd be penalized. Her plan would have given the EEOC an incredible amount of power to reevaluate business decisions on pay. But it's not just the federal government and federal government policy that impacts how much opportunity women have. There's also state policy, and we've definitely seen this in the age of COVID. Um, unnecessary state occupational licensing laws make it harder for people to work. Under traditional state licensing regimes, individual states require people to meet specific requirements, such as education, training, exams, or fees to get a license to practice an occupation. So moving across state lines requires a new license. Well, Arizona Republican Governor Doug Ducey signed into law a bill that made the Grand Canyon state the nation's first to broadly recognize occupational licenses from other states. This is simply good policy. After all, massage therapists don't forget how to give massages when they cross state lines, and presumably passing state requirements in one state is enough to protect the health and safety of those in others. I believe is the win for economic mobility. People who wanna work after a move are more likely to do so. Take active duty military spouses, 93% of whom are female. Military families move on an average of once every three years. Careers that demand families move on short notice or frequently make it harder for anyone to maintain a career. For those in careers that require a license, the cost can be prohibitive and make working next to impossible. I believe Arizona's move should be the first step and rolling back licensing requirements that are needlessly costly, time-intensive, and in many cases have no real value or purpose besides keeping competition out. This is a women's empowerment agenda that everyone should be able to get behind. We should truly work together in ways that benefit all women. From education reform to fighting FGM, there are plenty of issues for all women to work together on. And we should think about how federal and state policies end up prohibiting women from setting up the work-life arrangements that they actually want, regardless of if they have children. Under opportunity feminism, we should seek policies that make it easier for women to find the work they want and allow, them to, and allow that to change depending on life circumstances. A tragedy of modern feminism is that the women's movement has been captured by a narrow American domestic policy and politics agenda. Let's work together to end that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Karen, and thank you, Zan. Uh, let me uh, open it up for questions, and if you don't mind, I'm going to privilege uh, the students in my class who are sharing their class time. Uh, if I think it'll be easier since I can't see everyone on the screen if you use the raise hand function, and that. Any students with a question? Go ahead, James. Uh, unmute yourself, and uh, introduce yourself. Uh, hi, I'm James. I'm a senior poli sci major. So this is for both panelists, but especially for Karen. And you talked about opportunity feminism and women in the workplace in particular. What role do you see family playing in your version of a new opportunity-centered conservative feminism? Yes, thank you so much for that question. Uh, so the way I define this opportunity feminism is that we wanna maximize freedom so that women can build the lives that they want, right? Build the fulfilling and meaningful lives that they want. I don't wanna define what that is. I want women to have the freedom to define that for themselves. 
So part of that means that some women are going to choose to focus solely on their career. Some will focus solely on children. And I imagine a majority of women would um, have different seasons or different combos, or that might change over time. So I want to do what I want is for us to maximize freedom so that women can then adjust based on um, their families and what truly works best for them. So that's why occupational licensing reform, I mentioned that, that's a great example of um, allowing women more flexibility, all Americans, but I imagine this would impact um, women who want to have children or have small children, giving them more opportunity to go in and out of the workforce if they move, giving them more chance to change jobs or careers depending on life circumstances. I think a problem um, with the left and the left's version of feminism is it uh, imagines more one view of what women want and is focused um, solely on the career aspect um, and hasn't focused so much of, of giving women that chance to, to build the life they want um, and what they think is best for, the, for themselves and their families. Zan, did you want to get in on that one? Sure. I would just add, I think um, that last point in particular is, is informative because it's another way in which uh, what conservatism stands for is in some way defined by uh, filling a vacuum on the left. And so because, you know, I think traditionally, or at least for the last, I don't know, 60 or so years, um, the Democratic Party has been kind of seen as the party of the little guy or the family or the middle class worker. And I think we've seen really a shift taking place, especially one of the good things I think about Trump is he's been able to speak to kind of that demographic that the left has traditionally spoken for. And I think with a, a shift towards the left on social issues in particular and a shift towards identity politics, um, progressives have kind of sidelined talk about helping the American family, helping the American worker, um, and their focus on kind of a radical pro-abortion feminism in particular has left conservatives with an opportunity to give a different kind of message. And so whether that's um, you know, something like paid family leave, which I mentioned before, I think I favor doing that probably at the, the state level if you were to have such a program, but some conservatives advocate doing that at the federal level, kind of repurposing other entitlement programs that already exist to enable women to take paid family leave, um, things like that. I think you, you have an opportunity to tell women, hey, we're actually listening and this is about a lot more than making sure you can get an abortion through all nine months of pregnancy or making sure that the federal government is forcing your employer to subsidize birth control. I don't, I just don't really think that's where the majority of American women are in terms of the things they care about most. Okay, thank you. Um, please use the uh, raise hand function. Uh, I think you can find it under reactions. Um, uh, Maren, please. Hi, um, I have a question for Ms. Lips. Um, I was kind of wondering, I've witnessed a lot of my friends, um, I'm from Idaho, a lot of people are LDS. Um, people do tend to get married uh, pretty early. And so um, I've watched a lot of my friends already start their families and it's been great to watch, but um, I do worry about what it leaves them open to later on in life should their spouse pass away or um, a divorce happen or anything like that. And I was wondering if there is a specific policy objective to kind of maintain women's economic viability while allowing them to take kind of these seasons um, to work and take time off to care for children, but to come back into the workforce. Well, thank you for your, for your question. Um, I'd like to comment on, on two things on that. One, I think it's time for us to rethink uh, education. So right now we think of either K through 12 education or going to college 
And we basically front load all of our education and then assume people are gonna have all the education they need for their, the rest of their lives. Um, well, people are living longer these days, um, you know, the economy, industries change. Um, I'd love to see more creative options for people to be able to, at a certain stage in life, decide, hey, I wanna go back in the workforce to do so, I need a skill, I can um, gain that skill and then, and then go into a workplace, maybe even change industries, something. But I think there's room for a lot more creative thinking um, in terms of people going in and out of the workforce. And the second point um, that continues on that is this um, like on-ramp question. So I think a lot of times the discussions about women with kids is, you know, can, you know, we cut back on hours or can women work part-time or can you adjust the workplace a little bit so that women could stay full-time working and also raising kids? Uh, I'd love to see more discussion of how do you on-ramp and off-ramp? So could you start in job leave the workplace for a little bit, uh, have bosses and, and companies that understand um, what went on when you had that uh, so-called you know, resume gap, and then come back in. Are there more ways to on-ramp back um, into certain industries? And a few years ago, we did see some uh, law firms um, start programs that um, you could sort of think of it as an apprenticeship or an internship where you would have the chance to come back in and then possibly stay on. I'd love to see more creative sort of like on-ramp uh, options out there. Great, thank you very much. Uh, can I get a question in to both of you? Um, uh, the first one I guess is for uh, Mrs. Lips. Uh, you mentioned the self-censorship among college mm -hmm. students. Uh, is that more, uh, do, is there data on, do women, conservative women self-censor more than conservative men? And then Azam, my question for you will be, um, uh, one often hears um, complaints about uh, from pro-life women, there's, there's no room in the Democratic Party or on the left for pro-life women. Uh, is there room for pro-choice women uh, on the right? So thanks for asking about the um, self-censoring question. Um, I'd encourage you all to look at this Cato poll and maybe I can put it in the uh, um, chat um, dur during the discussion but it came out within the last year and really confirmed um, the stories that we were hearing from our students that for years you would hear, oh, students worried about their grades, but now there's a silencing pressure. It's just the atmosphere on campus that it's not just the grades, but it's also that peer pressure that they worry they're not gonna, you know, not gonna have friends, not, to ha not going to have bridesmaids at their weddings. There's just a really intense social pressure that exists. And one of the big challenges with that is like, you can't fix that by legislation or by, you know, you know, some proclamation or something. That's really a cultural phenomenon that we've got to address. Um, and truly, it's got to be a lot of the people on the left that address this, because I think they're the ones that are pushing, pushing this pressure. Um, I think sometimes systematically, sometimes it's just sort of happening and people don't even realize it. Uh, but we do hear this from a number of our women in different chapters. And I'm happy to say we've got a chapter of new um, at Notre Dame. So we're glad to have a good chapter there. Uh, but we do hear that there is this pressure. Um, and one thing I thought was interesting in this Cato, Cato study is that they found that the longer people were in higher education, the more pressure there was to self-censor for Republicans. So you can see that sort of bared out in the data, what we might imagine about um, what higher education does, does to folks in terms of, in terms of politics. Um, I would love to see more data on um, men versus women because I do, at least what we see, I think nationally, is I believe there's sort of a special, almost like vitriol for conservative women who stand up. So I imagine that would that would show up in some data. 
can I ask the students, Zan, before we turn to you, um, the Notre Dame students uh, about self-censorship at Notre Dame, is this common here uh, on campus? Anyone want to weigh in on this? Uh, let's see, James, go ahead. And then Michael. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I used to be on the left and now I'm on the right. So from, for either way, I haven't really seen self-censorship as a major problem here. I think people are pretty open-minded about uh, exploring ideas with people that they disagree with. And that's been one of my favorite parts about being here is that people, it's a real institution where people who disagree can discuss politics and discuss ideas without it becoming a, you know, without it becoming superheated or a personal argument or personal debate. So I think that especially compared to other universities where there's pretty rigorous censorship or self-censorship, it's not really a problem here. Michael? Yeah, I was gonna say, it's probably not as bad, or like James said, as, as, as experienced at other universities. And students are, are open-minded even in, in online forums. M most generally, there are some accounts, um, for example, on Instagram, there's an account called, I think, ND Republicans Exposed, um, which seems to be moving or attempting to move students and has got a good amount of followers toward um, exposing the right. Um, but it's not a, a widespread thing that you see a lot of people wanting to, to cancel each other. It seems that the campus is generally opposed to um, wishing to cancel people. Uh, and now that, that being said, you know, you know, it's a, it's a campus of 10,000 uh, undergrads and grad students. So you're going to get, um, you know, all sides of, of that issue. And there are going to be some people who are intolerant. So you just got to deal with it and, and speak your, you know, what you think is the truth. Go ahead, Bridget. I would agree with them that like, when you're in conversation, most people are minded and well. There's a very broad assumption that everyone's a liberal. Um, and like one girl call was talking to her boyfriend on the phone and she's like, I think there might be a conservative in our dorm. And like she learned later on that like two of her roommates are very conservative. And so I think it's very free. I think is a degree of um, just secrecy about it. Like not willing to put it out in the forefront. Interesting. Okay. Zan, what about, what about um, pro-choice uh, women on the right? Is there a place for them? It's a really interesting question. I think it really comes down to what do you mean by is there room for them? So if your number one issue as a, you know, if you call yourself a pro-choice woman and the most important issue in politics for you is that uh, abortion remain legal, probably you're not going to want to vote Republican. You're not going to consider yourself a conservative because there aren't I mean, that's actually one issue. To, the life issue is one very disqualifying issue, I would say, among Republicans. If someone finds out that you consider yourself pro-choice or you voted in favor of, um, you know, pro-abortion policies, generally you're not going to succeed as a Republican politician, at least at the national level. Um, so I would say in that sense, there isn't. But I would contrast it with the left in that, you know, we're talking about this question of is there room on the left for pro-life women? Are they welcome in the party? Because nearly every Democratic politician, when asked about this, says, 
if you're pro-life, we don't want you at our party, don't vote for me. So that's a very different thing. Like you don't really see Republicans saying to pro-choice women, please don't vote for me because I'm pro-life. But you see on the left all the time, if you're opposed to abortion, just leave. We don't want you here, regardless of the fact that one third of Democrats still call themselves pro-life. All right, thanks. Okay, the queue is open. Uh, and let me open it up to, to anyone and everyone if you use the um, raise hand function. Uh, Michael and then Evangeline, Michael. Thank you. Um, so I'm sure you've you've familiar with the book, the uh, the two income trap, which was uh, released in 2004 by um, who would later become Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, and her daughter. Um, and in it, it points a particular vulnerability um, at bankruptcy associated with um, changes in how uh, people are able to earn incomes, uh, both in the um, late 20th century. And also, as you see this sort of change in, in what she describes as the safety net of stay-at-home mothers. Um, so, so what is your solution uh, that you'd propose to the two-income trap? Do you see um, subsidizing wages and subsidizing paid family leave as the uh, best set of policies to do this? Or is there a different approach that you would each take? Zan, uh, you want to go uh, for that first and then Karen? Sure. Um, I'm glad you brought up that book. That's a really interesting book, actually. And I, I read a lot of it thinking to myself, what happened to Elizabeth Warren? Because I think she's right on on so many things, but just the way she's gone on policy, I think actually negates a lot of what she found in her own research for that book. So in any event, um, I guess I'll take the, the paid family leave thread in particular, because I think that's one of the key areas where you can kind of address that. You know, the, the idea of the two income trap is an enormous problem and it would need to be solved through a, a whole host of policies, not just paid family leave. But I think that's one key area that conservatives are, are honing in on, um, in part because the left is pushing a, a new entitlement program, a federal paid family leave program, creating new a whole new set of taxes and, and new um, entitlements versus all the Republican proposals out there um, repurpose existing entitlements. So I think one or two of them would take social security. You can essentially draw your own social security forward if you have a child to fund 12 weeks of paid leave if your employer doesn't offer it. Um, another one would I think draw from uh, the, or increase the child tax credit perhaps to compensate or you could draw from the child tax credit um, to, to offset that. I think that's a really key way where you could address some of the issues that are created by what we've got, I guess, the two income trap, because women, I think a lot of the times, if they have a job, they feel like they have to keep a job to keep a house wherever they happen to be living. And if you're kind of facing a choice between keeping your job and having more children, I think that's a really unfortunate position for both men and women to be in. And if the conservatives are kind of the, the movement, the pro-family movement, which I think undoubtedly we are, um, you have to kind of address the fact that conditions are making that uh, a problem for people. Well, and let me address maybe some of the education side of things to, to take it in a different direction. It's one thing I think it's, it's interesting we have to take into account when we're talking about programs and creating new entitlements is what they do to parental choice. Um, so in DC, for example, they offer, you know, pre-K, you know, not just K through 12, but also pre-K. Um, but, you know, when you're earning income, you're paying for some of that. If you choose to opt out of um, that system, then you're paying for, for education separately. So I think it's interesting what happens when you have government programs that say they're going to help children and help families. Um, I don't believe they always do. And actually, I think sometimes they limit choice. So I just would encourage us that we've got to think about the secondary consequences of a number of these programs that are offered in the name of helping people. 
I don't truly believe they they help or have the the consequences that we that we always want them to have. Okay, uh, Evangeline, and then Professor Addison. Hi. Yeah, I was just um, it's kind of a general question for both people. Um, like uh, was mentioned earlier, like yeah, a lot of conservatives, especially women, don't speak out. Especially like I felt that I haven't been able to like claim that I'm a Republican. I remember freshman year, my roommate asked me and I just uh, said I was independent just because I knew that she was Democrat and wasn't really willing to get into that or didn't want to. Um, but like, I'm just wondering, like going forward, how Republicans are going to kind of like break through this bubble and reach women in the workforce, like reach women, because it seems like the Democrats have a platform that's based on like, we'll provide you with the best stuff, we'll get you equal pay, we'll give you the rights that you deserve. And um, it just seems like Republicans can't break through that bubble. And like, I'm wondering, uh, is the best thing to do have a female run for president? Or how can we reach women? Can I jump in on this one? <laughs> Please. Yes. So really like your question, and I would encourage everybody on this call to think about, like, do you have any, maybe it's you, or do you have a liberal friend who, who's ever said on campus, oh, I decided to keep my views private because I was worried about how someone would react to them, right? Like, I imagine if you ask, yeah, someone's laughing. Yeah, if you ask young conservative women, I think that's very much a common shared experience um, in general, right? Not for everybody, but in general. But on the left, it's not a common shared experience. So one of the things we're trying to do in the Network of Enlightened Women is encourage all the incredible conservative women that we know to speak up, right? And serve as ambassadors for conservative ideas, promote a positive, empowering version of feminism. So a few years ago, we gave students shirts that said, this is what a conservative looks like. And our students would tell us stories of you know, how people reacted to those shirts, right? Like if you had one and they do have that, this is what a feminist looks like shirt, Right, like that's not seen as controversial on campus, but just being outspoken about a conservative, it, it, it is um, with that label. So what we're trying to do with this opportunity feminism um, idea and, and anew is really promote the idea that conservative policies do benefit women and that we should stand up loudly and proudly for that and challenge this leftist narrative um, and not kind of cede all the ground when it comes to women in policy. And if we want to do so, we need to, you know, have the facts, have the data and make those strong arguments uh, and speak out. And that for too long, conservatives have kept quiet. You know, I think some have given up on college and young people, but it's time to, to speak out and make that positive pace, positive case for a truly empowering version of feminism and conservative ideas. Zan, do you want to go get on? Yeah, I just wanted to address your, your specific question about, you know, would it be as simple as perhaps having a woman run for president? I, of course, would love to see a woman run for president as a conservative. Um, but I also would note, I think, kind of the flip side or the problem with identity politics and how progressives tend to wield that concept is it doesn't work both ways. And we could see this, for example, with uh, someone like Sarah Palin or when Carly Fiorino was run running for president as a Republican. Um, 
no one on the left is going to say, oh, look, a, a woman is running for president as a conservative. That's wonderful. You know, we should celebrate women in politics. When they say let's celebrate women in politics or let's get more women to run for office, they mean liberal women. And this kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, you're a gender traitor if you're a woman who votes for Ted Cruz or if you're a woman who isn't pro-abortion. Um, and so I think, you know, that's not to say women shouldn't run for office as conservatives. We saw a huge slate of uh, women run as Republicans and win seats in the House this past cycle. But as Karen pointed out, those women were basically entirely ignored by the media in favor of the one really progressive woman who won a seat. Um, and so I think, you know, we're kind of in a climate where the voices on the left and the identity politics voices who prefer progressives who are in these different identity groups uh, are just going to glorify anyone who shares their views and is in those groups, but they're just going to probably dislike even more strongly uh, a woman who espouses conservatism. Well, let me add one thing that we can talk about, you know, presidential politics, but I think it starts now. It starts on campus. So if you see those conservative female voices getting silenced, I would encourage all of you to stand up for them and, and encourage your, your uh, peers who are speaking up because uh, it's a, I think it's a long-term play for conservatives to, to win back women and it's got to, the fight's got to start now. Okay, thank you. Uh, Professor Audison. Uh, thank you very much. It's a fascinating conversation. So um, I wanted to ask a question that follows up on some of the earlier discussion about sort of the, the broad tent approach or the scope of um, people who might be attracted either to conservatism or to um, this particular version of feminism. Um, and I wanted to ask about uh, transgender individuals. Um, so do you see a place either in conservatism or in this version of feminism for people who consider themselves transgender? Do they have a, is there a position that conservatism or feminism ought to take with respect to transgender individuals? Um, or is there a role or a place for them in either conservatism or feminism? Um, I'll take a first crack at that and Karen, feel free to follow up. I would just say, first of all, my, my general sense as a conservative is anyone who agrees with conservative principles and wants to vote for a conservative candidate is always more than welcome. I don't really consider myself in the business as a conservative opinion maker of telling people you may not identify with my ideology group if you don't hold every single you know view on the list that I happen to think is right. Uh, but at the same time, and especially with regard to feminism, I think uh, the transgender question is a tricky one because oftentimes what uh, transgender individuals or advocates for transgender individuals are pushing as a policy can be, in my view, anti-woman. So if you take something like um, these bathroom privacy bills, transgender individuals or their advocates often push for bills that would allow biological men into spaces that, in my view, ought to be private for women as a matter of safety and privacy. Uh, and so when it comes to a policy like that, there is some, I think, tension between where conservatives are coming down and where some on the left are. But of course, that's not to say that if you're a transgender individual, you might not disagree with advocates on that question and, and might consider yourself more conservative. Yeah, I'll just add, uh, as someone who's followed Title IX for years, uh, I think what's going to happen with Title IX, there's still a lot of questions out there. And I think that somebody's looking for a college paper idea. I think what happens in Title IX um, in this day and age um, is going to be so something definitely to, to follow. Okay, thank you. Uh, a good question and thoughtful answers. Um, the, the queue's open. Let me, let me ask a, a question of both ladies. Uh, you both spoken very eloquently about uh, uh, why you are conservative and uh, why you think conservatism uh, as a, a set of ideas uh, is good for women. How do you think conservatism has failed women? How would you change conservatism to, to serve women's interests uh, better? 
Do you want to go ahead, Karen, or should I? Uh, go ahead. That's fine. Okay. I, this is something I guess I would want to give uh, more thought, but my first reaction is I think it's really a, a messaging problem more than anything. I think uh, if you look at the sorts of policy or, or ideological um, issues that conservatives tend to push or champion, they're very much in line with uh, principles that all women are uh, helped by, let's say. So I think greater freedom um, and opportunity is good for women and men alike. And that's not something that I think the left tends to offer as much. And so I think uh, as a platform, conservatism is good for women, but that doesn't mean that conservative leaders always um, talk about conservatism in that way. It doesn't mean they are always inclusive of women. And I think they don't push back enough against the lie, frankly, that only white men are conservative. And I think when they, when Republican leaders, for example, prioritize um, tax cuts, not that I'm against tax cuts, but when they, you know, kind of prioritize that as the only action item in Congress, and they sort of shove to the side something like pro-life bills or uh, paid family leave debates, when that's sidelined, I think it sends a message to women, okay, you could be here, but we're just not really going to talk about things that you care about most. And we'll focus on these other things that we're kind of pigeonholed as always focusing on. Um, and so I think it, maybe just being a little more proactive about things that women tend to care about more might be a good way to solve that problem. Thank you for that that great question. I'd love to, to think on that more uh, as well. But one thing that does come to mind, um, I think this echoes your point a little bit, is about media optics on things. So one area I pay attention a lot to is equal pay. And I would love to have all conservatives, when they come out against um, legislation that's been offered by the left in the name of helping women, not just say, oh, I'm against this legislation, but begin, you know, every speech or every article when they talk about this by saying, I believe in equal pay for women. Because the left uses their votes uh, being against legislation that, you know, might end up really hurting women. Um, they use those votes and those comments to then say, oh, conservatives are, are against women, which is not is not what's happening. So I just love to see more conservatives when they're uh, kind of making their cases um, to come out and firmly state what uh, they believe, but might think in some ways is, is so obvious, but come out and explicitly say, you know, I believe I want women to have equal pay um, before going into why legislation or, or policies by the left um, actually aren't in the best interest of women. And I think we could see that in other, other areas as well. It's just, you know, really speaking out force um, and being aware of how things might play in the media more. Can I follow? Sorry about that. Uh, can I follow up on this question about the messaging? Um, have you, in your observations, do uh, conservative women politicians or uh, uh, intellectuals uh, communicate to women better, do you think, than conservative men? I think I'll start on this. I think uh, the left sometimes, you know, pushes that idea, right? There's this stereotype that they try to fit a lot of conservative men into. Um, and I think there are some extremely strong conservative women out there who are great advocates for conservative ideas. And they have a likability and an authenticity um, that really speaks to a lot of people. For example, I don't know how many of you all follow Nikki Haley on social media, um, but she does such a good job at it that um, you just see that and you wanna, you wanna be a part of it. So I think there are, we've got some great advocates out there um, and I'm glad to see more conservative women building bigger platforms and doing, I would say doing conservatism in a way that's authentic to them that then resonates 
uh, with a, a wider array of people. Um, I wouldn't say that conservative women are better at it than men, but I think unfortunately a lot of conservative men and in particular politicians um, have almost bought into the left's framing of things where you can only talk about women's things if you're a woman. And uh, I think that's a huge mistake. And, and part of the problem is, again, kind of there's this huge media complex against conservatives. And so if you're a conservative man who is a senator and goes down to the Senate floor and tries to talk about something that the left wants to pigeonhole into being a women's issue, they're going to be like, oh, angry old white man says X, Y, and Z about women's issue and, you know, anti-woman politician. That's just kind of what's going to happen. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. And I think to the extent that conservative women are, are better at advocating on these particular issues, it's because conservative men have not just said, you know, that's stupid. That's a dumb narrative. It's not true. I can talk about these issues too. I can say the same things that are just as true and I can advocate on behalf of women and I ought to as a conservative man. And let me, um, let me ask one question if I may, which is um, judging by the makeup, it looks like there might be more men in this course than women. What's the breakdown in this course versus um, Notre Dame? Because I think that's interesting in terms of who's interested in the future of conservative ideas on campus. Uh, any students, can you ask, uh, I'm sorry, answer the Notre Dame question in general? My impression is Notre Dame's pretty close to 50-50, but the students might know better than I do. Anyone want to jump in here? Go ahead, Micah. Yeah, I think when, like, concerning political science courses, I think you see often more men than women um, just across the board, either left or right. So um, I think this is, this class um, shows, like, political science courses in general at Notre Dame, how they usually are. I, I, I'm doing this from memory, uh, so I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I think about a third of the class is, is women. Okay. Yeah, about a third is usually how it goes. Okay. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, like, almost anything to do with uh, constitutional studies or conservatism and political science in general, like, I think I'm usually one of three girls in a class, um, and some of them get bigger to, like, 20 or 30 people. So I feel like it is a pretty general trend to have, like, a pretty small portion of women in general. I'll we'll have to check our numbers. I think in the, I direct the University's Constitutional Studies minor, uh, and we have uh, roughly about 100 minors. I think we might have more women minors than men, but I, I um, it fluctuates, but I should check on that. Um, Soren, do you know by chance off the top of your head our numbers on the minors? I don't know. We've had an influx, so I actually haven't been keeping track of that recently. Okay, thanks. Soren, did you have a question? I see that your hand is raised. I do. Um, thank you. I This is a question to both of you. It seems to me that um, on the right, there seems to be two narratives about femininity itself. One being more, um, Mrs. Lips, you seem to get at this, the desire for equality in the workplace. You know, women are just as good at men. We can compete in every field. Um, there's no reason why we should be paid less or there's no reason why uh, we shouldn't, you know, achieve political status. Maybe Nikki Haley's gonna run for president, who knows? Um, and then there's also, it's you know, among younger women uh, that I talk to also a, a trend towards more feeling that they've been, um, that kind of discourse discredits femininity on the whole. The question of, can uh, is there something special about women or different about women? Or should we just keep it all sort of neutral and just only discuss those, um, those more uh, sort of public square sort of uh, issues? So my question is, 
what what definition of femininity or, or um, womanness do you think that the right offers? And, and is that different from the left? And then the other question is um, kind of tying back to uh, Marin's question earlier about divorce and relationships. And it seems to me that some of those policies that um, policy solutions that have been offered so far about uh, creating more ability for flexibility in the workplace, re-entering the workplace after taking time off, things like that. Um, it doesn't quite make sense to me, and I'm, I'm not an economist in any way, but it doesn't quite make sense to me why um, law firms or businesses would want to hire, why would they choose to hire a woman back after she'd been working for a while, something, or um, off for a while, something like that, when instead they could hire a man who would you know, be able, that would be his full-time career. Um, I'm not saying that's an even necessarily good thing. So part of it, part of that question is also the question of um, the push towards women working is, is good for our country and good for our families when uh, we see rates of uh, family togetherness decreasing and, and problems there. So I guess with both of those questions, what does femininity look like as the, as the general theme? I guess I might start there. Um, I appreciate your critique on, on how I'm uh, framing this equality in the workplace, because I think the way I want to frame this in terms of opportunity feminism is that women who want to focus on their work lives and careers, I want them to have equal opportunity to do so. At the same time, I want women who prefer to make different choices. So maybe that staying at home with their kids um, to be able to do so. And so that there's policies that don't um, incentivize or put the thumb on the scale of just focus on getting women 100% into the workplace. So um, I appreciate the, the feedback there that I truly do want women to have, to, to be able to make the option that's best for themselves and their, their families. Um, and we've seen over the years, like a lot of women who've been in fields and in careers that are really pushing women to stay in the workplace and trying to make accommodations and things um, there does seem to be a, a fair amount of, of dropout once, once kids come into the picture. I know I used to work at a law firm and there were lots of efforts um, to encourage women to, to stay in the workplace and what could they do to, to help women. And yet, um, as, as we see, I'm a mom myself, once you have children, um, things, things often change and priorities often change. Um, and so I do want to talk about an opportunity feminism and a version of feminism that truly empowers women to make, make the decisions um, that are best for themselves and their families. And that shouldn't solely be focused um, just on careers. Um, I would say, I think that the left and the right are both failing at this. I don't think either side really has a coherent explanation of what femininity is or what it ought to be or how that should affect our, our policy or our political ideology. I think the left is a lot more guilty of this than the right. I think the left um, pigeonholes women. I think the left uh, dismisses women who don't agree with them politically. I don't think there's any robust conception that what it means to be human should play any role in politics on the left. Um, but on the right, I think you see kind of two pots and one is a lot bigger than the other. And I think you were sort of hinting at this in your question, but there's one, I think sort of dwindling um, argument that it's better for society when most or all women are at home and don't work. I think that's kind of an older conservative idea that you still see people arguing in, in some form, or at least I've seen it directed at me from some conservatives. And then there's a, a growing pot of people who basically talk about this as in terms of um, men and women are both human and can do the same things and ought to be able to do the same things. Obviously true, women should have equal rights. Um, but I think there could be a much more robust vision on the right 
of the fact that men and women are different and have different things to contribute and that there is certainly, um, there are certainly more women than men who want to stay home, not that all women must stay home or it's better for everybody when all women stay home and don't work, uh, but that a lot of women do want to do that. And we need to talk about the fact that that's true. We need to talk about the fact that we'd all be better off if women who want to do that were better able to do that. And then sort of framing our policy around that kind of more robust explanation, I think. So um, it's a good critique. Thank you. Uh, Sean. Um, hi, thank you for coming to speak to us today. I'm uh, Sean Tian. I'm a junior political science major and comm studies minor. Um, my question is, how much of this issue in this debate is political and how much is kind of sociocultural? Because it seems like we often are talking about political solutions and stuff um, when really seems like a lot of the issues kind of rise from family life, which serves uh, men and women best in society. And uh, or it, it seems like a big issue is a lot of how women portrayed in the culture and media and other such institutions. And so if it is cultural, how should we shift focus from less talking about like paid family leave and more talking about that sort of sociocultural interaction? Um, I would just say, I think you're, you're right that it is far more sociocultural than political, uh, but policy does shape culture. And I think, um, it's important to think about how the policy choices that we make, whether at the federal or state level, affect the choices that people make, affect their view of what culture is and ought to be. Law shapes people's views of what is good and what is not. And so in that sense, policy has a very powerful role in shaping people's behavior. Something like a paid leave program will almost certainly influence the choices that people make in terms of rearing families, working at the same time, all of that. So it's important, but I do agree with you, it's not as important. Uh, but I think it's sometimes easier to come at because there's not really any way to get a handle on all the sociocultural things that are going on that, you know, affect women or affect the choices that they make. And, and I think having covered um, politics now for, I guess, four, four or so years, um, going on five years, that's very frightening. Um, one of the things I've come to believe is that the, the media has an unbelievably outsized role in changing people's views of what is true and what is not and what they think they should be worried about versus not worried about. Um, whether that's Hollywood or major newspapers or social media. Um, and that's a lot more difficult thing to kind of get your hands around than a policy debate. And so I think that's why you see it often framed in terms of policy, because it's, it's almost like trying to eat an elephant um, to talk about how something as big as the media influences our, our society and our culture. Yeah, and I'll just echo that um, and then mention the really important role of community. So I think one way we can influence culture is through um, building communities uh, and especially for conservative women and then um, encouraging them to speak up. So whether that's, um, you know, doing public speaking workshops or um, connecting them with more mentors, just different things we can do to try to build that community to then encourage women who often feel very much alone on campuses across the country to then speak up. I think that that can make a difference. And we've seen that in, in new in our organization. Um, a few years ago, we did this She's Conservative campaign where people, we ask young women to um, tweet out why they are conservative with the hashtag She's Conservative. And that got some attention um, last year with the 100th anniversary of women winning the right to vote. We saw the left quickly try to take that and use that holiday as a way to um, pass uh, more progressive legislation. So we wanted to make sure that they didn't, they weren't able to sort of like take over the women's rights movement in that holiday and instead um, spoke up 
um, and wrote articles about why conservative women vote and conservative women um, make a difference and should be part of the celebration. And then this year we are running a year of the conservative women campaign. So highlighting a lot of the conservative women that are, um, I would say maybe forgotten would be a generous way of saying it uh, by the left, uh, but basically are left out or ignored by many women's magazines. So highlighting those women um, and then seeing if our conversations with those women um, through monthly kind of conservative women of the month conversations, I'm hoping that that will then inspire more young women to speak up. So I think one way we at least as an organization are trying to influence this culture to get to get back to your question is by building up more of a community so that um, conservatives don't feel so alone out there, especially on campuses. Uh, Michael, please. Uh, thank you. And I, I guess going back to a theme discussed in, in Marin's question earlier is what happens when uh, we reject or when the uh, the two parent family structure breaks down. Uh, Marin mentioned, you know, death of a spouse or divorce, but, you know, there's a lot of children simply born out of wedlock uh, today. Um, and cultural change, we all understand is going to take a very long time if we're if that you're able to pull that off. Um, so, so what does a conservative movement have um, to meet single mothers where they are? Uh, and to care for people who are already in these situations. Um, I would just make two two points, I guess, off the top of my head. The first is, I think it's important for a political movement to speak to everybody or to find a way to appeal to people where they are and convince them that your set of uh, policy proposals or your ideology is a good fit for them. But at the same time, I I don't think that um, I guess sort of the, the conservative instinct is that the government doesn't exist to answer everybody's personal problems, right? The government, in my view, exists to protect, protect natural rights and to give people space, essentially, to make the choices that are best for them. And so a uh, hundred years ago, we would never, I guess there wouldn't have been such a high rate of single motherhood. So maybe that makes it moot, but we wouldn't be talking about government or politics from this framework of what are you going to do for X person, right? Because I don't think the government should really be doing something for X group of people all the time. Um, so maybe that's just kind of a fundamental quibble, but being where we are, you're right. Um, there should be kind of a way of speaking to everybody where they are to some extent. And I think conservatism, um, doesn't always do a very good job of this when it comes to people like single mothers. But I do think that the argument of family togetherness is a lot better than let's create another welfare program for you. Um, and so in that sense, I do think conservatives have the better argument. They just have to do a better job of messaging it. I think we do need to, again, like, you know, try to reach out and talk, talk to everyone. Um, I do think the message of how important um, kind of sequencing is um, in terms of a predictor of poverty is a message that should get out there more. I think we talk about it often at the academic level, but it, it's not out there as much. Um, and so I think that would be something from a poli you know, purely po policy perspective um, that we should be, should be talking about more. Okay, I see uh, uh, August and James, and I have a, a few questions of my own. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left and I wanna be respectful of um, our guest time. Uh, so August, go ahead. Uh, hi there. Uh, thanks for coming to uh, speak to us. Uh, a, a while back, uh, Gladden Pappen and Maria Mola put out a, a somewhat controversial conservative family plan, and they argued for uh, replacing, you know, our patchwork of tax credits 
with instead direct transfers towards that family formation. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think uh, that that could be a viable uh, strategy for reaching out to uh, moms and families who wouldn't normally uh, think conservative? And do you think conservatives need to uh, get over being allergic uh, to direct uh, cash transfers? Um, I will give myself room to think about this going forward, but my thought in the past and my thought now is I am very allergic to direct cash transfers to people and I believe I'll remain. So I don't really think, you know, if you're at the point where you're advocating giving money to X group of people, you're essentially a Democrat, you're essentially progressive, you just want to give it to different people. Um, so I don't really think, you know, just because it's ordered perhaps towards a conservative end doesn't make it a conservative proposal. I'll just chime in on the, on the freedom point um, that to me, I'm always very nervous of, of legislation or ideas that um, are going to infringe ultimately on, on freedom. And I imagine these policies, they have requirements and pretty soon they're directing how people live their lives. So I'm, I would say I'm very nervous about that from a, from a freedom perspective. Okay, James, I see your hand up though. I can't see you. Did uh, you have a question? Yeah, going back to the culture war and the need to change messaging, I think both panelists, panelists have mentioned this to an ex extent, but given the fact that the left is becoming increasingly hostile to basic concepts involving biological sex and gender and the nuclear family, the institution of marriage, do you think that that provides an opportunity for conservatives to say, basically, look, we, look, you know, we believe that women are women, men are men, that marriage is good. Do you think that one of the ways conservatives can improve their messaging is to just contrast against the newest cultural sentiments coming out of academia and coming on the left? I guess I better take that. Um, I think that uh, there is certainly a lot of room for conservatives to do a better job of messaging. Um, but I would go back to what I said um, in a previous answer, I think, which is oftentimes it really feels like the deck is stacked against conservatives because people, you know, you mentioned academia, um, people on the left have essentially a stranglehold on some of the largest uh, sort of voices in our culture, Hollywood, uh, major newspapers, social, I mean, social media is rife with progressive ideas. TikTok kids are, I mean, I don't use TikTok. Maybe you people know what's going on with that. It's a big gap, I suppose, between us that we're only a few years apart. Um, TikTok is full to my understanding of just these kind of sound bite ways of pushing progressive ideas or especially left-wing social ideas. And so when you have that kind of status quo, I think unfortunately as conservatives, we're just facing a really uphill battle in terms of messaging. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Um, that's kind of what I do with my job. I, I write at National Review where we do that all the time. Everybody who works for us does that all the time, but the National Review is never going to have the voice in our culture that the New York Times does. And so I think it's a matter of um, encouraging people on kind of a one-to-one -one level of uh, articulating and pushing back against what the left is sort of shouting from the mountaintops in every prominent sphere. Um, and I'll just add, it seems for some reason the left now has a, has almost a monopoly on the idea of uh, that, that they care more and that their policies are better. And I think I would love to see on the right us uh, speak more like loudly and firmly that the reason that we're advocating for these policies is because we actually do believe that they are um, better, better for people. Uh, and uh, 
you know, really directly confront that because I think that's a gap in how we talk about um, policies and what we're advocating for. And you see that in the way that um, some might say from the left in Hollywood, you know, they use their speeches when they win awards to, to, to advocate for certain things. And it makes them seem like the biggest champions when actually some of the policies that they advocate for wouldn't really um, benefit um, those people that they say they would. So I just like to see kind of more on the right directly confronting that and, and making the case of how these policies really would help people. Okay, we're nearing the end of our time together. Uh, I wonder if I could ask a autobiographical question uh, of you both. Um, was there a, a book or a series of books that you read in college or, or whenever, I suppose, uh, that most influenced your thinking? Uh, and how did, you, how did you come to your conservative views and positions? Uh, well, we only have a few minutes left, so I don't think I can list all the books that, that, that influence that, but I'd say definitely in college, um, taking some political theory classes, reading, it was just so important, you know, from Hayek to Burke, um, Marie Michael Oakeshott and thinking that was very, very interesting, um, and just seeing these contra contrasting views of what conservatism is, um, having a lot of those conversations. So I would encourage all of you students to have those conversations now, push back against each other, um, really get into the nuances of what is what is a conservative political uh, a philosophy. Um, and then I would say, especially because I just watched um, the latest season of The Crown, I think reading um, Margaret Thatcher's books um, was really fun um, in terms of women's leadership and um, kind of seeing her life and her journey um, in, and seeing her come to prominence. I, I really enjoyed reading those um, years ago. I would certainly echo the, the shout out to political theory. I think my education at Notre Dame, I, I couldn't list all the things that I read, but even just my intro to political theory classes, my con studies classes, studying the founding in particular, and then the, the articles, people interpreting that and why that kind of leans in a conservative direction, I think was really formative for me. Um, and I would also give perhaps a different, um, not so much conservative answer, but I think reading a lot of Catholic teaching and Catholic theology actually points me in a conservative direction, not necessarily on um, economics questions or prudential questions, uh, but in terms of uh, kind of giving a robust vision of what it means to be human, I think the conservative movement and the conservative ideology does that in a way that I think progressivism and the left in fact, is fundamentally opposed to. And that's not to say that conservatism lines up with Catholicism, um, but my most, I guess, deeply held set of principles is my, my Catholicism. And so learning about that and about um, human nature and what it means to be human points me towards conservatism actually in a, a fundamental way, I think. Uh, Soren uh, just messaged me a question, but Soren, it's, uh, I'll let you ask it. Uh, it's a good one. Thank you. Um, this, your answers to this question and um, Alexander, your, your point about TikTok and, and the social media um, world out there. Do you think, I heard it recently that uh, conservatives won't be able to raise their children conservative. Do you think that's true? And then to add on to your question about, or your answers about the books that you read, um, I mean, if you, with your children or if you, if you have children, do you think that that's possible in this culture or will the conservative uh, conservatives have to radically readjust their message and or change their policy suggestions to conform to this, to, to the rising generations? Uh, 
I, I guess I should start off. I think um, the point about not being able to raise our kids conservative is a very interesting and troubling one. I, I think um, the trends right now seem to suggest it's getting much more difficult. Um, I don't know that it will be impossible, but I think even when I was a kid, um, my parents homeschooled me for part of my time growing up and I went to Catholic school. And I think that was a big part of why I didn't really encounter until um, I got to college some of the stronger arguments from the left. And I think it's important, obviously, that children form a well-rounded view. They shouldn't just believe what their parents teach them. Uh, but it's different to encounter strong forms of arguments versus kind of an indoctrination almost that's coming from every angle out there in the culture. Um, so I think it certainly is becoming more challenging. I think it requires intentional parenting at the very least. Um, I guess, that, yeah, that might not answer everything you asked, but I, I would leave it there. I guess um, I'd say I'm hopeful, right? Like we have to, as parents, be hopeful and, and do our best. And I think COVID is showing uh, a lot of parents that they didn't realize what was actually being taught to their children. So hopefully um, one good that comes out of the, the, the age of uh, this pandemic is that many more parents um, are more aware of what's being taught in school and can either push back or provide alternative content or just make sure that their kids are getting um, a good quality education that, that's less of an indoctrination and more of a, a well-rounded education. Yeah, my next question was actually on COVID and the pandemic, not COVID itself, but the, on the pandemic uh, and to, to what degree that has impacted women differently than men. And, and then, um, how will it change things in the future, do you think? And will those change it? Well, the fact that we're all very comfortable with Zoom now, will that be better for women, do you think? Worse for women? I know we're running out, so I'll comment quickly that I think it does. It is going to raise questions um, in a lot of workplaces about whether everyone, including women, actually need to come into a workplace. Uh, and so I think this will help a lot of women with children who will be able to make a better case that they are able to um, work from home if they want to stay in the workplace and cut that commute, which can be very, very helpful for people who live in big cities or have a long commute um, and will ultimately give them, give them more choice and more control over um, what their future looks like and how they balance um, careers and families. So I think that could be a positive that comes out of this. Yeah, I don't have much to add on that. beyond that. I've just seen many women already writing, uh, especially in PhD programs and things like that, that it's given them a lot of flexibility uh, to speak or to be on dissertation panels or things like that, um, that they couldn't have done while they're raising children. And I, I hope that's one thing that sticks around one maybe small silver lining from this situation we've been in. Okay, and then one final question for both of you. Um, Zan, we can find your writings at National Review. Where, where else can uh, the students here find, find where you're writing? Um, I mostly write at, at National Review. I write every other week for the Catholic Herald as well, and I do a little bit of freelancing here and there. Um, but you can also find me if you're on Twitter at Zan underscore DeSanctis, if that's your thing. As bad as social media is, I do try to keep a presence there. And Karen, tell us a little bit about uh, more about the National, um, about New and the Notre Dame chapter for the Notre Dame students. Yes, so I started the Network of Enlightened Women known as NEW um, around 16 years ago when I was a student at the University of Virginia. Uh, there's been a real demand for programming, you know, on college campuses, there's women's centers and women's studies departments and lots of women's groups that are more liberal. Well, NEW provides an intellectual home for more conservative women. Um, so we're a women's leadership organization on campuses around the country, including uh, at Notre Dame. If any of you are interested in getting involved, um, and don't know who the contact is, please email me. My email is Karen, K 
K-A-R-I-N at enlightenedwomen.org. And I'd be happy to um, put you in contact with the Notre Dame chapter. And for any students, I can uh, share uh, Mrs. Lip's uh, email contact information with you. Um, uh, I, I tried to find out how many students, uh, the gender ratio in the constitutional studies program. So found out we have 112 minors, uh, 52 men and 60 women. So we're slightly over 50% for, for women in con studies, almost 60%. Um, uh, Zan DeSanctis, Karen Lips, thank you very much for such a thoughtful conversation. Uh, again, to my class, thank you for sharing your class uh, with uh, the Notre Dame community. Uh, for those who can join us again next week, uh, be the last day of my class, and uh, we've invited Sarab Amari from the uh, New York Post and uh, Yuval Levin uh, from AEI and National Affairs, and we'll be having a conversation on uh, rethinking conservatism after Trump. Uh, that's open to everyone, so please join us uh, at 12.30 uh, a week from today. Uh, Zanda Sanctus, Karen Lips, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.